0: made it. We're here. We've survived.
1: All of us have survived a situation which at the time seemed insurmountable.
0: But the people you'll hear from this week have truly overcome adversity. From spending two months in a coma, to being shot down over enemy territory, to surviving a concentration camp.
1: These are their stories of survival. Five tales, documented now and hopefully preserved forever. These brave souls reflect on their journeys of survival. The one thing they have in common, a part of their story exists here in Prague. So what does it mean to survive? Welcome to the PragueCast. This is the fifth episode of our podcast and the second of our spring 2015 season. I'm Wynona Rinkus. And I'm Sophie Frank. Thanks for joining us. Our first tale of survival involves a DJ and a deadly illness.
0: Steve Fisher always wanted to be a writer. He didn't always envision moving to the Czech Republic, and he certainly didn't expect to spend two months in a coma after being infected with a life-threatening bacteria.
1: We spoke with Steve at his Prague 3 apartment to learn more about living through a near-death experience and coming out on the other side.
2: My name is Steve Fisher. I'm going to be 60 years old this year, so that introduction wouldn't really be so brief. I am an American, and in 91 I moved to Prague. In my life I wanted not just to be a writer, I wanted to be an actor. I got to act in 20 films here. Uh, I wanted to be a DJ. And somebody started a radio station here broadcasting in English in 1993 and I got a morning show, and I got to be a DJ for a year. <laughs> I fell in love, I had two beautiful kids, and I was just having, a, a, having just a beautiful, beautiful life, really. And, and then six years ago, in 2009, on April 1st, April Fool's Day, I didn't feel very well. I was at work. I was tired. My colleague said, you should go home. And so I went home. I laid down. Next thing, I had a horrible pain in my chest. And I thought, I've got to go to the hospital. And as soon as I got to the hospital, I died. And they brought me back to life. They had no idea what was wrong with me. It was like an episode of House. house. They'd never seen anything like it. They put me in a coma, in an induced coma, and I got sepsis, and it required them amputating the fingers on my right hand, my left hand entirely, and both of my legs below the knee. But they saved my life. I, of course, had no idea what was happening. I was in a coma, and I was having a dream. For two months, I was dreaming. And I was in this fantasy world that was endless. It was like Alice in Wonderland. And it was a nightmare. I mean, I was in all of these strange environments. I had no idea where I was, what was happening to me. I knew that in the dream, I knew there was something wrong with me. And that I had to somehow fix it. And it was an endless story of me trying to find how to fix my body and get back to my life. And it was really scary. This so happy in my life as the day that I woke up and found myself back in my life and my now ex-wife she was there by my side and in my dream my kids had died and the first thing I said to her was how are the kids and she said they're fine they're fine I was like oh my god and I was so happy And the doctor said, Mr. Fisher, we gotta tell you, you're lucky to be alive. But unfortunately, we had to amputate your fingers, your hand, and your feet. And I was like, that's okay. (laughs) I'm I'm back. I'm back. I spent seven months in rehab and learning to walk again on uh, artificial legs. And learning to use uh, this robotic uh, hand, very high-tech, robotic hand, looks very nice. <laughs> German technology. And uh, and getting my strength back. Living through this uh, lethal illness definitely changed my point of you view. Know, I always appreciated my life. But now, every day I wake
3: up, and it's like a
0: bonus. And if you were wondering, the tracks you heard there were chosen personally by Steve as some of his favorite songs during this most challenging time in his life.
1: Music also played an important role in the daily lives of the inmates of the Terezin concentration camp, set up by the Nazis during the Second World War as a transit camp for tens of thousands of European Jews. Most were then sent on to Auschwitz.
0: Tomon Brod was a 13-year-old schoolboy when he was deported to Terezin, known in German as Terezinstadt, along with his family. He told us his incredible story of perseverance and survival.
4: I was born in Prague in 1929. Uh, We were four members in uh, our family. Not rich, but comfortable. And I have spent a very, very pleasant, very nice childhood. Uh, Our uh, good time was over in uh, September uh, 38. uh, The notorious uh, uh, Munich Agreement was signed and uh, in the same day uh, died my father.
1: What was that like? What did you understand about what was
5: going on? You were still a young child, really.
4: Well, we were very uh, well aware of the, of the common situation, of the uh, danger in the Hitler, Germany.
1: When did you see things start to change in Prague?
5: Well,
4: no, after some, uh, some, uh, some months, it was the first uh, phase of the... Uh, final solution of the Jewish question uh, to destroy our uh, self-confidence, our social uh, economic uh, situation and we were expelled from the uh, majority of the Czech uh, society. This was very unpleasant, uh, humiliating, but we hoped this uh, persecution couldn't and and, and shouldn't last forever. We will be able to, to survive. Then, in fall '41, uh, the Hitler Germans started the second phase of the, of the uh, final solution, and they, they started uh, deportation transport to the East.
5: When did that really come to fruition for you and for your family?
4: Well, my mother, my elder brother, and me, we were deported in July '42 in Theresienstadt. In, in Theresienstadt, it was not the worst experience for me. We could uh, uh, attend uh, uh, theater performances, uh, uh, lectures and uh, sports games and so on. Unfortunately, we go, got a, a call for a deportation um, in one night. And then we were obliged to, to, to go to the assembly point in Theresienstadt. Worst experience in my life, this this trip from Theresienstadt to Auschwitz, because there were uh, corpses uh, uh, among us. Uh, we were nastily dirty and 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 half suffocated. We couldn't uh, couldn't breath. There were no no uh, no windows. We were surrounded uh, with uh, with SS guards and with bloodhounds, uh, with guns and uh, with crying and and barking and yelling and and beating. We were loaded. Uh, we were loaded on 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 trucks. Imagine that from our homes or from Theresienstadt, were sent to the east one thousand. And 150 boys younger than 16. Only 91 survived. And so, till the present time, perhaps 10 or 12 are now alive. For instance, the Johnny Freund is living in Toronto. Misha Kraus is living in, in Boston, Ota Fjord is living in Caracas in Venezuela, Yehuda Bacon in Israel, Charles Winter in Australia, Jiří Diamant in Netherlands and also here in Czech Republic three of us are still alive. All of us have a family, have a children and our children also have a children, and therefore we can say we are the winner over the Hitler Germany, over the, the insane uh, regime of the Third Reich.
1: Holocaust survivor Tomon Broad speaking to the broadcast team. For many Czechs and Slovaks, the peace that followed the war was short-lived. Just three years after the end of the war, Czechoslovakia was thrown into further turmoil with the communist coup d'etat. The people once again found themselves under the oppressive rule of a totalitarian regime.
0: And that was a soundbite from a documentary that tells the tale of Karla Kharvatova, a woman who was jailed in 1948 and became pregnant after being raped by a prison guard. (laughs)
1: <laughs> we had the chance to sit down with Karvatova to talk about her struggles under the communist regime. She's a very energetic woman for being 90 years old.
4: Thank A personal
3: file that the communist regime was keeping on every basically citizen in the the former Czechoslovakia. It was written that Mrs. Karvatová is um, coming from a background that is strongly against the communist regime and she is against the rule of people's democracy. That is how the communists were officially Uh, Calling their regime the People's Democracy. So, in all her records and papers, it was written that she's an
4: enemy.
0: Although Kharvatova was only in prison for nine months, her experience there changed the course of her entire life. She was forced to give birth and then gave her daughter up for adoption for the best interest of herself and the baby, given the conditions she was living under.
1: Fifty years later, Karvachova was reunited with her daughter after she contacted her mother. Her story has been captured by Tomasz Boška, director and creator of this documentary. He spoke to us a bit about his inspiration behind creating this work and his interest in sharing Karla Kharvatova's story.
3: Karla Kharvatova, to me, is a unique example of a female political prisoner who was, of course, heavily persecuted, but who also uniquely coped with what has happened to her in the past. She is, to me, a real example of coming to terms with communism.
0: When asked what kept her going through these tough times, Harvatova mentions her father.
3: (laughs) What perhaps contributed and helped her to survive is that she was like her father. Her father was a hardworking man who even when he retired, his official pension from the state was 300. Czechoslovak crowns, which was nothing, and so he had to go on working, so he barely had holidays, he barely had free time, but he was so hard and so, uh, let's say, mannered, that he somehow managed, and he never complained about anything, and she said that she's, uh, she feels she's a bit like him.
0: Family clearly plays an important role in stories of survival. Just as Karla Harvatova looked to her father for inspiration, our next interviewee looks up to her grandfather.
1: We spoke to Elise Stefaniak, like us, an NYU student here in Prague, whose grandfather Norbert experienced an almost miraculous survival after being shot down over enemy territory during World War II. It was on his second mission out. He was a navigator on a B-17,
5: um, and they were flying over Nazi Germany, but the part. Uh, I'm Nazi Germany that had recently been France, but had become Germany. Um, It was 1944 in May, and two of the engines got shot out. So the pilot issued like the bailout warning. So he and the bombardier jumped out in their parachutes. He fell over a forest and got stuck in a tree with the parachute. He was hanging from the tree for a few hours, he said, and then he started like swinging back and forth and tried to like get himself unhooked but he fell on his back and hit his head really hard and he doesn't know how long he was passed out on the ground for. For the next few days, he ended up kind of sleeping in the brush, hiding and walking at night to where he knew there was going to be um, a bigger town. But it ended up that he couldn't cross one of the big rivers on his own. So um, he was just kind of like on one of the riverbanks thinking about what to do next and a man named August Long approached him, and they both didn't speak each other's language, he didn't speak German. The guy didn't really speak very much English. And um, they were kind of like playing little charades, like gesturing what he needed. And um, he asked for a sip of water. And the man immediately gave him a canteen, but it was full of schnobs. <laughs> and he was like, all right, I guess that'll do. He told him to stay there um, and then he would come back later. He came back and brought him at night and dressed him in like farmer's clothing and brought him through a field to his house. And that's where my grandfather stayed the next seven months until like American military lines consumed the town. Then he was able to be repatriated. And part of the story is um, somebody had to pretend to be his fiance, correct? Because he didn't speak German or yeah. uh, French or anything. Yeah. In the beginning, he didn't leave the house for two months. He was kind of hidden up in the upstairs bedroom. And he learned a lot of German really quick, or as much as he could, in the first um, kind of two months. And he also taught the family English a little bit. And then he started going out around the town, and people would ask a lot of questions. And in the beginning, he kind of held up this persona of how he was mentally ill and couldn't really speak and a little bit like retarded even so that people wouldn't really suspect and then at one point the whole town had to be evacuated and when it was they were evacuated they chose one of the girls in the village to act as his fiance and like drafted up fake papers kind of so that he could like travel with the family and stay with the family but then, after, after a certain amount of time, the entire town knew that he was American. And they were okay with it, but it was kind of like a big-kept secret, oh, wow. which, which is really interesting. You grew up hearing about the story from your parents and grandparents. How do you think that affected like your idea of what it means to survive and to overcome such like, hard circumstances? Yeah, that's interesting, actually, because um, this story didn't come out until my grandfather passed away. Um, he told little bits of it. He had, he had ten children after the war my dad is the eighth. And so the sto- he only told like bits of it to two of the children. Mm-hmm. But then once he died, it was kind of our family's mission to go out and find what really happened to grandpa during the war. My family and I got the chance to go back and visit this family a few weeks ago, and they called us their cousins. Wow. And yeah, and they just treated us with so much respect. And so That was amazing that that experience that my grandfather had in 1944, like, brought our families together from across the world.
0: As Elise demonstrated, these stories of survival have the power to bring people together. And you know what else brings people together? What? Beer.
1: For our final survivor, we look not at a person, but a place. In the heart of the old town lies one of the oldest pubs in Prague, Uzlatio Tigra, the Golden Tiger, immortalized by Czech writer Buhimil Hrabel.
0: Perpetually packed, the Golden Tiger has survived, almost untouched, for literally centuries, serving customers some of the best beer in Prague since around 1713 we met up with Prague native and pub aficionado, Josef Boschka, who gave us the lowdown on this immortal watering hole.
6: This is one of the last, uh, last traditional pubs in the center of Prague that hasn't really become um, a tourist trap. It's almost as it has been in the last century and even the century before. In the sixties of the last century, they moved the tap and uh, they added uh, a flat screen like 12 years ago to watch football games. And and I think that's the only two changes that have ever been here. The traditional Czech pubs those that are almost extinct now. We're the places where people were meeting regardless of class, and you don't have places like this anymore in Prague. The football national team, sometimes the, the guys come here, and nobody goes, goes to them to take pictures. There is a certain certain code here that, that, that you want to respect, so famous people can come here and have a drink as anybody else, anybody else can sit with them, talk with them, if they happen to be sitting at one table. For most Czechs, even the young ones, there's nothing like going to a place where, you know, you leave the ashtray here and you come here in one week and the ashtray is in the same position. It's nice that there is a pub that, that, that works this way, you know, and, and it's not like that you have a favorite place, then you go for a vacation, you come back and it's a Mexican restaurant. Suddenly. And you want a goulash and now suddenly it's taco. This country has gone through a major change in the year 1989. The city has improved, the whole country has improved a lot, but there was a continuity that that, that has been lost. So whereas Prague now is a much nicer place to live than Prague in the 70s and 80s, there is very little that has has an uninterrupted tradition over the years. And this, this is one of the places... I'll start from a different angle, you know. This this is a place where uh, many, many celebrities have have come to. Bill Clinton, Angela Merkel, the Rolling Stones, almost everybody that's been to Prague, Bruce Willis. Yet, they've gone a really long way to avoid becoming a place aiming for tourists. It's not like that they wouldn't want tourists in principle, but the problem was that after a revolution, it was one of the favorite pubs of uh, the uh, former President Havel. So many of the state visits that came here went here, and, and the place became famous. It, it made it into the guides and everything. And, and uh, the owners, as well as the patrons, became very afraid that uh, within a year or two, it's it will be difficult to even get a place, and uh, the prices will go up. So the owners went a really long way to, to prevent this from happening, even at the cost of, of being a bit uh, tough on uh, on newcomers. Uh, here, the, the, the patrons, those who have been coming here, for 10, 15, 25, 30 years, come first. And, and everybody else is, is, is supposed to behave polite, to, to respect the rules. And uh, As long as you can grasp the atmosphere and the spirit of the place, it's an island in the middle of Prague where, where, where it makes sense to go.
1: Josef Boska, faithful customer of the Golden Tiger Pub. survivors have demonstrated an ability to master the precarious balance of staying true to oneself and adapting to the conditions
0: around us. Wasn't it Charles Darwin who said, It is not the strongest of the species that survives, nor the most intelligent. It is the one that is most adaptable to change.
1: Well, that's all for this edition. Thanks to our editor, Rob Cameron, and the whole broadcast team. Annexi Barnes, Megan Donnelly, Zoe Edelman, Darian Henshaw, Tommy Shizuka, and L. Lutz. And special thanks to Griswold, who performed our original theme, which was composed especially for this podcast by Dalton Core. Feel free to get in touch with us at nyuprodcasts at gmail.com, or find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the username Prodcast.
0: I'm Winona Rinkus. And I'm Sophie Frank. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Tune in again soon and keep on surviving.